by land and two if by seed. You remember that from your days in school? Yes, we remember and we are going to be remembering what we celebrate this weekend, our nation's independence. And we're going to talk about what happened on that first night when the rioters left Boston, headed out to Lexington and Concord to warn the people that the British Army was advancing. And they had arranged for that signal. One lantern in the belfry of the North Church meant that they were headed out by land. Two lanterns meant they were headed out by sea. And when they saw the warning signal of two lanterns, Paul Revere and William Dawes, they rode out to warn the people that the British were coming. Well, that was the start of the engagement, the real violent hostilities that became the war for independence. And we're going to talk about that. And, and you probably remember that at Lexington and Concord, that's where the events took place that we now know as the shot heard round the world. But what you may not know is that what happened at Lexington was really, and, and to a certain degree at Concord as well, we're concentrating on Lexington today. What happened at Lexington was really the church heard round the world. Did you know, and you will today, because we're going to talk about it, that the church played a vital role in that first couple of events, and it continued throughout the rest of the struggle for independence. We're just going to focus on what happened that first night and early morning in Lexington, Massachusetts. Well, welcome to the program. This is this is faith, a discussion of faith. Faith is, and we're going to talk about what it means to have faith and how that worked out in some practical ways relative to our nation's independence. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Cape, in Cape Coral, Florida at Diplomat Wesleyan Church, and our church is pleased to bring you this program every week, and I want to thank them for their support and for their help and encouragement. We hope this program helps you. It's designed to be meaningful to you, both informative, but also to strengthen you and to help you stretch toward God's high calling. We don't have the luxury of shrinking away, especially in these days. We need to stretch toward God's high calling. And indeed, they did during the struggle for our nation's independence. And we're going to get to that in a little bit, but let's talk about some other things to get started on, on that idea. And one of the things that I have noticed in my lifetime is how things have shifted. Years ago, it went without question, without discussion, that when it came this time of year, that we would celebrate our independence in church, and we were unashamed and unabashed to give thanks to God for the liberties He had given us. It didn't occur to us that that was inappropriate to thank God. It did not occur to us that it was inappropriate to set aside time to rejoice that God had given us this land, this nation, this country, where we could be free to not just live our lives according to our consciences, but we could be free to worship as we saw fit. Never occurred to us that that was inappropriate, but in these days, we've seen people question that. And so let's think about some of these things, and let's talk about them, because we need to have good answers for people that ask important questions. And so I want to kind of think out loud along with you for a few minutes, and then we'll get into the events of that momentous night and morning 
that is characterized by the midnight ride of Paul Revere. You may have heard the expression, and I don't know that it's widely heard, so you may not have. So uh, I, don't, I don't know where you are on this, but you, you'll sometimes hear people complain that we shouldn't have Christian nationalism. And what they mean by that is that they're concerned that Christians today mix Christian faith with nationalistic sentiment, and they call it Christian nationalism. Well, I don't know any Christian anywhere that thinks that country comes before God. Uh, you may be able to find some. I'm not saying they don't exist. But in my experience, my lifetime of experience, I've never come across committed followers of Jesus that believe that the country comes before God. It has always been, and I've always heard it said, God and country. God comes first, country certainly a distant second behind God. That doesn't mean we devalue the country. That doesn't mean we don't honor the country. That just simply means God is first. Now, along comes this idea described as Christian nationalism, and the way it's used, I don't think it's really well-defined. I've read some information, some material that some people tried to define it more exactly, and and for their purposes, I suppose they succeeded. But in a general sense, I don't think it's very well defined at all. In fact, in one instance that I heard about some months ago and, and read what this gentleman had written, the whole idea of Christian nationalism was his way of condemning the people that disagreed with his political perspective. And as he was condemning in them what he called Christian nationalism, he was practicing a type of wait for it, Christian nationalism, because he was describing the country through his lens. And it was, it was no different except that they were differing in their political perspective and on what they thought was appropriate. And as I've watched this term be used over time, I'm, I've come to the conclusion that most of the time when it's used, it is used as a way to disparage church people and their loyalty to the country their expressions of thanksgiving to God for the country, their patriotism, the, their patriotic expression by the clothes they wear, the songs they sing, the words they say. People will describe that as Christian nationalism in an attempt to disparage that. And what I think they're really doing, and I don't think this is the first time, I think what they're really doing in trying to discourage people from giving thanks to God for their country is they're trying to marginalize their voice in a political sense. They want to keep the church from speaking up. And so they add this pejorative name, Christian nationalism, and that is an attempt to make those people stop and think twice and be quiet so their voice is not heard and someone else can win a political battle. What I think goes on most of the time, at least from my perspective, is that there's a great deal of, of patriotic sentiment among Christians because we give thanks to God for our liberty, and we recognize that our first freedom is that freedom of religion that the Constitution guarantees. And so we give thanks to God for that, and we're grateful, and we're not ashamed to say that because God has given us an enormous gift we call liberty. Now, as I think about that, and I'm, I'm not sure that I've got it all put together, but as I think about that, and as I want to help us think about that, I start to ask myself, well, how have we become a group of 
followers of Jesus who are divided over this? How is it that some Christian leaders seem to be reluctant to express anything like patriotism? Why are they holding back? Why do they try to discourage that? And, and again, I don't know that I have it all figured out, but I noticed some time ago when I was reading, and, and it cropped up in, in some reading and study about the book of Revelation, interestingly enough, and an idea that, that I can best describe to you now and that appeared to me then surfaced around one word called empire. And, and as best I could understand it, and because the book of Revelation is a remonstrance against, uh, some, some would say an attack on the Roman Empire, it comes up there because this Roman Empire, this tyrannical, heavy-handed government that was actively working to suppress Christianity, was identified as an entity and an evil entity that needed to be dealt with. And so this concept of empire seemed to surface from that study, I, it showed up in some other places that I saw it, and, and I read a little bit about it and tried to make sense of it. What really got my attention was when the people that were talking about empire and, and attaching that description to the Roman government of ancient times began to describe the United States government in terms of empire. And, and wow, that struck me as interesting. Um, I could say a little confusing, except that it didn't. I don't didn't feel confused myself. I felt like maybe the people that were talking about this were confused because how do you equate the United States government with a tyrannical empire like Rome? They were talking about the United States government as if it's an entity unto itself, a separate entity, uh, separate from any of us and existing kind of on its own somehow. And, and that, that seemed odd to me because that's not at all what the United States government is intended to be, formulated to be, should be allowed to be. Because in the United States, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, and you may remember this from his Gettysburg Address, he described our country as a nation of the people, by the people, and for the people. So understanding that formulation, and I think he's, he was right about that, that's a good one, understanding that, that we are a people that form a government of, by, and for the people, then empire connections don't fit because the government is us and we are the government. And to describe it as some disembodied separate entity from the people simply isn't accurate, and it's a it's a mistake because we put the United States government in the same category as the Roman Empire, and they are clearly different, both in how they were formed and how they were intended, and and still, and we can argue about this to a certain degree, operate today, and and so I think we need to we need to consider that carefully, and and because this is the the time of year when we celebrate our independence, we should remind ourselves of, of a document called the Declaration of Independence, because that was the document when that was signed that signaled that the colonists of this nation, before it was a nation, the people that lived here, that colonized the countryside, had decided that it was time to declare independence and to be its own nation. 
The people had had enough of the king's tyranny. They were tired of the British heavy-handedness, and they believed the only remedy to preserve their liberties as free people, which as Englishmen and English women, they expected, they expected to be free people, but they had come to the conclusion that the only way to preserve that liberty was to declare independence. And so they drafted what we now call the direct the Declaration of Independence, and we celebrate its, its drafting and signing on July 4th every year. We look back to 1776, July 4th of 1776, as the birthday of our country. And so if we're going to understand how our country isn't like other countries, if we're going to understand that we aren't an empire like the Roman Empire, if we're going to understand what it means to have a government in America, then we need to remind ourselves of what our founding documents put forth, what they said was so, what they declared. And it's not the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, it's the second paragraph, but I want to read some of that, and I want us to, to remind ourselves of, of who we are as a people. And the writers wrote these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And it goes on, but we can't tackle all of it. And, and on this weekend, when we celebrate our independence, if you haven't read the Declaration of Independence, some people have never read it. Or if you haven't read it for a while, I want to encourage you, find a copy, do a search on the internet, you can find it there, and read the Declaration of Independence. And I want to focus on this little statement that I read here, just to remind us of who we are. First of all, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident. That means they are obvious. They're so obvious that, they're, that we can't even begin to prove them because everybody recognizes that all men are created equal. And so they affirmed that. It's obvious that people are created equal. They go on to say they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, what they're saying there is what we must never forget, ever forget, that our rights come from our Creator. We often say today, and usually say today, that our rights come from God, and they do. Now, not every nation believes that. Not every government formed in the history of the world, or even a contemporary government, believes that the people have rights that come from God, and that they are rights that cannot be taken away because they are gifts from God. And so that's very important in, in the foundation of our country to realize that, that we are equal people, that we are created people, that we are endowed by that Creator with rights that no one can take away. They named just three, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So here we are, free people, given this 
these rights by God that no one can take away, and it's so self-evident that it should be obvious to everyone. And then they say this, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. So why do we have a government in the United States? There was a very specific reason that they identified here in the Declaration. It says that governments are instituted for a reason. We form governments to secure the rights of the people. Did you get that phrase? That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. See, our rights come from God, and we in this country formed a government on different levels, federal, state, local, but the government we formed, going back to the Declaration, was given a primary purpose, and that was to secure the rights that God has given us. That is hugely significant, and I hope you hear that in many places and expressed in as many ways as people can find creative expression. But we cannot miss that this is at the heart of the founding of our country. This is at the soul of the founding of our country, that government's primary responsibility is to secure our rights. They don't give us our rights. They don't decide which rights are good for us and which rights aren't. They don't have any arbitrary control over them. Their responsibility is to make sure that no one infringes our rights as a free people. That's a key to the, to the institution of government in this country. And it goes on to say that not only do they secure these rights, but, but governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now notice it says just powers consent of the governed. See, we form governments because we, the people, consent to their formation, and we give them certain powers to exercise on our behalf by our consent. We don't give them a blanket opportunity to do whatever they want. We give them consent for just powers, and the only just powers are the powers we consent to to give them. That's that's absolutely significant. See, that's, that's why our country uh, can't be considered an empire like the Roman Empire, because the government springs from the people and their consent. In the Roman Empire, the people didn't give any consent to the government. They, they, they had to be subservient to the government. And, and I know people say, well, it was a republic, and, and yeah, on certain levels it was, but it wasn't at all like ours because our government was formed from the people up. The Roman Empire was not formed that way. If you need more reason to think about this idea that, that our government is from the, the people, I want to remind you of how the Constitution of the United States begins. The, the preamble, the opening statement, we the people of the United States, see, there it is, we, the people of the United States, not a government steps up and says, we're the government of the United States. No, it says, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, 
ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. And did you get that last part? Secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We form this union, these United States, to secure the blessings of liberty. That flows right out of that Declaration of Independence idea of securing the rights of the people. Secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And that's, that's absolutely significant. And one of the reasons it's significant is because over this last year, when we've seen governments react in the way they have to the perceived threat from, from this virus, they have exercised powers that the people never consented to give them. And we need to recognize what happened and not let that ever happen again. Churches were forced to close. And they had no authority to do that. The Constitution does not give the government the opportunity to limit the church. It was never the intent. It was always the intent of our formation of government to secure the people's rights. And we watched the people's rights get trampled. So that's an important foundation for us to understand. Now, let's, let's go back a little bit farther. Because people will say, well, okay, but what's the Bible have to say about that? Well, the Bible has plenty to say about the idea of liberty, and we're going to talk about, about that a little bit. Liberty has always been God's idea. From the beginning, the concept of liberty was God's idea. Well, do you think liberty for people would come from the other fella? Do you think that liberty would come from the enemy of our souls? No, liberty has always been God's idea. Think about that in a little different way. When he created Adam and Eve, were they free people or were they under some kind of tyranny? Did they live in bondage or did God give them freedom to live in the world he created for them? Well, the obvious answer is they were free people. There was no tyrannical government lording it over them. They were free to, to live their lives before God in the way that they determined. All they all they needed to do was listen to God's restrictions, and they would have lived as free people forever. The only thing God said was, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, and of course they did. And, and when that happened, sin entered the world, and that's when tyranny and bondage resulted. It resulted from sin. How else would you describe it? How else would you, would you think about it other than that tyranny and heavy-handed government and bondage for people resulted from sin. It wasn't something that God would ever institute, that God would want people to, to treat each other that way. We don't see any evidence that that's God's desire in the Bible. And in fact, that not only is, is it true that God wants freedom, but, but the, the story of the Exodus from the history of God's people is one of the pivotal stories that teaches us an awful lot about this idea of liberty. Now, you remember the story that, that God's people had gone to Egypt because they were uh, caught up in a famine and might well have died. God sent Joseph there, and they moved to Egypt, and it literally saved their lives. But over time, the Pharaoh that saved their lives and 
the ones that remembered Joseph and his pivotal influence in saving the Egyptians, forgot about that, and they enslaved God's people. And they lived in bondage, a difficult, brutal bondage. And so God said to Moses at the burning bush, I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Now, think about that a little bit. Think about what did, what did uh, Moses go to Pharaoh to tell him? Now, we know for sure that the people were in slavery and bondage. That's not in question. We know that's, that's absolutely certain. But what else did Moses say to Pharaoh on God's behalf? Have you connected this dot? You see, God didn't get his people out of Egypt just so they would no longer be slaves. But in Moses' famous statement to Pharaoh from Exodus chapter 7, verse 16, Moses said to Pharaoh, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. Did you catch that? Embedded in that statement was the idea that God wanted his people free from bondage so they could enjoy religious freedom. It was a civil liberty, and it was a religious liberty that God was after. That's what was going on in Exodus. Nothing less than that. Never forget that it was both end, a freedom from the bondage of slavery and a freedom to worship God, civil um, liberty and religious liberty, both together. And see, our founders understood the importance of those kinds of things. Alexander Hamilton said this, remember, civil and religious liberty always go together. If the foundation of the one be sapped, the other will fall, of course. Years later, Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story said this, There is not a truth to be gathered from history more certain or more momentous than this, that civil liberty cannot long be separated from religious liberty without danger and ultimately without destruction to both. Wherever religious liberty exists, it will first or last bring in and establish political liberty. You see, it was God's idea from Exodus and and people like Alexander Hamilton and Joseph Story and others in the founding era, they understood that you had to have liberty to have religious freedom. And and as far as I've been able to tell, and you may find differently, but I don't think so, there has never been ever an instant in the history of the world where people have lost civil liberty and retained religious liberty. They just go together. Tyrants can't stand religious liberty because religious liberty teaches the people that tyranny is wrong. And so we have to understand that that this whole idea of liberty came from God, had his foundation and his start with God, and we need to celebrate that. We don't need to be shy about that. We don't need to be hesitant about that. We need to affirm what our nation's founding affirmed, that our rights come from God. Never forget that. Don't let anybody talk you out of that. 
we have always understood as Americans that our rights come from God and they don't they don't um, come to a subject to government control, government description, government kindness. They don't come from any source other than God himself. Our rights come from God, and we form governments to preserve, to secure those rights, because it matters that we have them and that they don't go away. And we understand that civil liberty and religious liberty go together. Now, sometimes I've heard in recent years a sad thing being said by some Christian leaders. Well, how can we expect to have liberty? Other people around the world suffer. It's absolutely true. Other people around the world suffer, and and that absolutely breaks the heart of God, breaks our hearts. But just because other people have fallen under tyranny does not mean God desires for all people to fall, fall under tyranny. And we need to recapture this idea that God's intention by this absolutely formative story of Israel leaving Egypt, God's intention is clearly evident in that he wanted both civil and religious liberty for the people. And we need to make sure we preserve that in this country. Bobby Jindal, the former governor of Louisiana, put it this way, America didn't create religious liberty. Religious liberty created America. And he was and is correct. And we, the people of God, need to make sure that people don't forget that because it was God and his kindness that blessed us with liberty and keeps blessing us with liberty and will give us all the grace we need to preserve that liberty. So we're going to talk some more. We're going to get back to the the two lanterns in the tower and the shot heard round the world. You'd stay with us. We'll do that in just a second and pick up the story and go from there. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. 
Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea, you can listen in on iHeartRadio, our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we explore the issue of faith, confidence in God, where we remind ourselves of important things and stretch toward God's high calling, because we can have confidence in God. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we want to build up that confidence in each other so that we can be strong and accomplish the purposes for which God has called us. Now here on this Independence Day weekend, when we in this country celebrate the gift of liberty, celebrate that God allowed our nation to become independent where we could have freedom like no other country in the world has ever experienced, we are celebrating and giving thanks to God for that. And, and we wanna talk about some more issues about what that means and then tell the story of that momentous occasion in 1775 that got the struggle for liberty started. And one of the things we shouldn't overlook as we've reminded ourselves that liberty is a gift from God and, and our country was formed to preserve those liberties and that we should always work to preserve them ourselves. We need to remember that, and this is a, this is a lesson that I don't think too many people think about, but I'm trying to learn it. So I, I think we need to help each other here, but we need to recognize that liberty is hard. Liberty is not necessarily the easiest path. Uh, now, not, I'm not saying that just because we have to sometimes resist the tyranny of government, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that it's hard because sometimes governments overreach. Well, they do. That They're made of flawed human beings just like us. But liberty is hard because it requires me to put up with the people that disagree with me. You know, strange as it might be. Not everyone agrees with me. I'm pretty sure not everyone agrees with you. But you know, to be a free people, to enjoy the blessings of liberty, I have to put up with the people who think differently, who want to believe differently, who sometimes want to behave differently than what I do. And it would be a whole lot easier if everybody agreed with me. Don't you think so? I imagine you think it'd be a lot easier if everybody agreed with you. Liberty's hard. Liberty requires me to give them 
the same freedom that I expect them to give me. Liberty is hard because it requires me to take care of myself and my responsibilities. It means that nobody's going to come along and do for me what I'm expected to do for myself because liberty gives me the opportunity to do for myself and no one's going to come and take care of me. That's liberty. It would be something entirely different if we expected an entity like government to take care of us and give us everything we wanted, everything we thought we needed. But that's not liberty. Liberty is hard. And I want you to think about the idea that that liberty is difficult. Liberty means we have to put up with a lot of things because liberty is liberty. Now, to be sure, I, I like this definition of liberty. Liberty is freedom with responsibility. And we can't leave out the concept of responsibility. And when I see people acting irresponsibly, that's difficult because I know liberty requires responsible behavior. But again, when I see that and it frustrates me, and maybe it may frustrate you, I'm reminded that liberty is hard. And that's part of what it means to work it out. Well, let's talk about what happened on that night years ago, back in 1775. You may remember some of the details of that, but the British had gotten word that there were some supplies and armaments being stored in Concord, Massachusetts. And so they wanted to um, capture those and destroy them because they realized that, that this struggle for independence had been building up. And so they made plans to march from Boston down the road to Concord and capture those supplies and destroy them. They had also gotten word that Samuel Adams and John Hancock were in the area and that they needed to march down there with the possibility, with the hope that they might be able to capture them. And capturing them, of course, would be a big deal because in capturing them, they could um, use them as bargaining chips, bargaining for their release. They could execute them publicly. And they certainly would have been pleased to remove them from the public stage because they were advocates of liberty. So the order was given that the British troops should leave Boston and march down the road. And the, the patriots, the colonists were ready for them. They were watching. And that's the idea of the signal of the lanterns, that one if by land, two if by sea. And the, the signal was given. And, and so the, the message went out. And two riders left Boston, Paul Revere and William Dawes, to warn the people that the British were coming. Now, often we've been taught, and I remember learning that, that they, they rode through the countryside saying the redcoats are coming. Well, probably they rode through the countryside saying the regulars are coming. That's what they would have called the, the British troops, the regulars. And so around 700, maybe 800 troops left Boston to march up the road. I saw a number as high as 1,000, but most people think it was hundreds, seven, 800 marched up that road to secure those supplies, those armaments, and to hopefully capture Samuel Adams and John Hancock. Well, Paul Revere takes off on his ride, and along the way, he warns the people and lets them know what's happening. And around midnight, he arrives in Lexington, Massachusetts, at the home of Jonas Clark. Jonas and his wife, Lucy, 
lived there in Lexington. Jonas was the pastor of the church. And so Paul Revere rides up to the house and, and tries to get the attention of the people inside who had, of course, gone to bed. And he couldn't get to the door to get them because the house was surrounded by 12 armed men. And they had put those men around that house because Samuel Adams and John Hancock were valuable people, and they knew that the British would be eager to capture or kill them. And so they put those people out to watch and provide protection. And so they didn't know Paul Revere, so, so they kind of kept him back. But eventually the, the people inside heard them, and, and Hancock opened the shutters and, and invited him in. And so they gathered together inside the house with Pastor Clark, with Paul Revere, with John Hancock, with William Dawes, and with John Parker, who was a deacon of the church. Now, let's set this scene a little bit. Now, we know that Paul Revere had come to warn them that the regulars were on the march headed that direction. And we know some of the story of how they stood their ground at Lexington. But do you know how involved the church was in this incident? Well, Jonas Clark was the pastor, and he was the one who lived in the house, and he was the host for Samuel Adams and John Hancock. They visited there and had conversations from time to time, especially, especially Hancock, because Jonas Clark's wife name was Lucy, and she was the granddaughter of Reverend John Hancock, the previous pastor of the church. Jonas Clark became the pastor after Reverend John Hancock. So Lucy was Reverend John Hancock's granddaughter. She was the cousin of Governor John Hancock, the house guest that night. And he was also the grandson of Reverend John Hancock. So they frequently talked and, and visited, and, and he found a place to stay in the, in the parsonage, we would say, at the Lexington Church. And so Jonas Clark was hosting them along with his wife, Lucy. And so they knew what was going on. They were well aware of it. And Jonas Clark had been an absolutely outspoken, fervent, and eloquent spokesperson for the cause of liberty. His voice had been heard far and wide, and he had understood it well and articulated it effectively. He was deeply involved in the concerns that, that these his people, he himself, his country was losing its liberty to the actions of the, of the English monarch. And so he spoke up, but he didn't just speak up and, and give a rationale for the cause of liberty, but he also took action. And Jonas Clark, along with the deacon, John Parker, they organized the churchmen. Now, these were the men in his church, and he's the pastor. They organized the churchmen and some of the townsmen into a small militia group. We call those militia groups, and you've heard this before, Minutemen. And this was taking place all over the countryside in that area at that time, that groups of people were coming together and forming these militias called Minutemen. Now, the reason they were called Minutemen, you probably remember this, is because they had committed themselves to being ready to grab their muskets, their supplies, and be ready to respond to the cause of liberty from within a minute of being given the instructions to rally. Well, they formed this group of men into a small militia, and they trained them on Sunday afternoons after church. 
in the church yard. Now, can you get that picture? Can you imagine this pastor and this deacon trained regular folks? They were not soldiers. They were not professional fighters. They had their own lives. But on Sunday afternoons after church, they would train. And, and because John Parker had some experience as a veteran, they would take training and learn how to become a disciplined force that could resist the tyranny, and they believed the army that one day might appear. I, I just find that fascinating. How many of us can imagine in our churches on Sunday afternoon that the men of the church would gather along with some of the Taos people and form a militia to be prepared because someday they might need to protect themselves from the tyranny of a, of a governor, of a government that would be out of control. Really quite fascinating to think about that. But this church and these church people stepped up to do just that. Now, the deacon, John Parker, was often referred to as Captain John Parker because, as I mentioned, he was a veteran. He had served in the French and Indian War, so he understood some of the things that would help them rally and, and present themselves in a way that could be effective if they needed to protect themselves and their families from an attack by the British in an attempt to take their liberty. Well, they weren't any match for trained soldiers, for British regulars, but that's what they were attempting to do. So, so here they are in this context. It's the middle of the night, around midnight, when Paul Revere arrives, when they rouse the household, when they gather to have a conversation about what to do. Samuel Adams, John Hancock, Reverend Jonas Clark, and Deacon John Parker trying to sort out what needed to happen, how they needed to be prepared for what might be transpiring soon. They knew that the British were on their way, but they really didn't know a lot else of what was going on. The decision after conversation was made that they should call the men together because the pastor, Jonas Clark, assured them that the men were ready and they had been prepared for this. They were prepared to fight if they needed to. They were prepared to die in the shadow of the meeting house if they had to. And so they decided they would call the men together. Samuel Adams and John Hancock had to get out of Dodge because they could not risk being captured or killed. So they left and John Parker gave the order to rally the men and the men rallied indeed early, early that morning. And best I can tell from what I've read is there were a little over 130 of the men that responded to the call that night. They assembled there still not really knowing what was going to happen. They had no idea really what the British were up to. They, they understood what was at stake. They, they could imagine what might be going on, but they also knew that they couldn't resist several hundred British regulars, but they had to figure out what to do because they believed liberty was at stake. Well, after a while, they, they decided that there's no reason to keep the men uh, assembled because they really didn't know what was going on. They, they needed more information. So the, they allowed the, the militia, the Minutemen, to disperse. And they continued to be vigilant. And finally, word came that the um, regulars were a mile away. And so they sounded the drum. Now, when they told the men to disperse, they, they gave them this instruction. They said, you, you can go and uh, 
go to your homes, go wherever, but you needed to be within the sound of the drum. See, the drum was what would signal that they needed to reassemble. And so they, they sounded the alarm, the drummer beat the alarm for them to reassemble, and the men did reassemble. It was about 4 or 4.30 in the morning by that time, and 77 of them returned. We're not sure why more didn't come, but it may have been because of time that they just didn't have time to get back because the British were on them quicker than they realized. And so the 77 men lined up in, row, in two rows in front of the church, in front of the meeting house, waiting the arrival of the British. Now, again, they didn't have any intention or idea that they could, could fight effectively, fight off seven or 800 British regulars. They, they didn't think that, but they knew they had to do something. And so they gathered to do something and they lined up ready and waiting for the British to come. Now, Jonas Clark, the pastor, had instructed them that, that God would only honor a defensive war. They were not to take an offensive position. And so the instructions were given. Captain John Parker, as he was known, the deacon, Deacon John Parker, Captain John Parker, gave the order that they were not to fire the first shot. They were not to fire unless fired upon. And so the British arrived, and there was a bit of a standoff, and nobody quite knew what was going to happen. There were some, uh, some uh, how should I say, threats issued by the British, some commands issued, some uh, uh, strong language used against these men. They stood their ground. They did not fire. And finally, after a period of time, and, and again, as I said, they knew they couldn't effectively fight seven or 800 British regulars. After a time, Captain Parker believed they had made the statement they came to make, and so he ordered the men to disperse. And the men did. They turned around and began to walk away from the British soldiers. As they began to walk away, a shot rang out. Now, much discussion has happened over the years about where that shot came from, who fired it. And as far as I've been able to tell, we still don't know who fired it. Jonas Clark was convinced that it was one of the British uh, that fired that first shot. But again, we don't know how to prove that. But as soon as that first shot was fired, the British opened fire on those brave men who had turned their backs to go home, were walking away. Can you imagine? They fired into the backs of those men as they were walking away. It was a short skirmish. Some fire was returned, lasted no longer than 15 or 20 minutes. When it was all over, seven of those brave men in Pastor Clark's militia lay dead. One survived initially for a short time, tried to get home, but died as he arrived back to his home. Eight men died in that skirmish eight of those patriotic men who were there to defend their liberty. Seven others were wounded. So it turned out only one British regular was wounded in what amounted to a, a skirmish in terms of the war. But it was a pivotal point because the people saw what was going on and what had happened. And they realized what was at stake. The thing that amazes me is that this was a group of church people. 
this was led by a pastor and by a deacon because they believed that God had given them liberty and they needed to defend it for themselves and for their children and grandchildren. And they believed it required them to do that. Stunning, isn't it? Amazing. I don't think we're told the story that way. I don't think we were told that there was a church group that stood there at Lexington and faced down the British. I don't know if we're told that, that they were so brave they would not fire the first shot because they trusted in God to bless them if they were fighting a defensive war, not an offensive war. I don't think we're usually told that they had turned their backs and were going home when the fighting started. Well, the fighting continued that day and it took place up the road in Concord. And you may know that from the rest of the story because it's sometimes referred to as the Battle of Lexington and Concord that started the whole conflict. And yes, up in Concord, the Minutemen had assembled, the militia had gathered. And yes, when the British got there, there was more of a battle. It certainly was not um, an easy time but the men in Concord saw smoke rising from Lexington and they believed that the British had burned the town. And so they responded by facing off with the regulars that came and resisting them. Well, they were a little bit successful. The, the British never did capture John Hancock or Samuel Adams, they escaped, but they did find a few stores of food and, and armaments that they captured or destroyed. Most of the armaments and stores had been dispersed into the countryside, and so the British couldn't find them. They found a few and destroyed them, and had quite a, quite a battle with the Minutemen there in Lexington. They ended up turning and retreating back toward Boston, and by this time, the alarm had spread throughout the countryside, and, and hundreds of Minutemen had responded and they lined the road back to Boston and harassed the British with continuing ambushes. They would fight as they went along from, from the houses along the way, from behind the walls and trees, wherever they could find cover and harass the British as they returned to Boston. Uh, amazingly enough, it, it wasn't uh, a good outcome for the British, but amazingly enough, we, they didn't suffer more loss of life than they did. In some ways, it was a, a remarkable thing that they got back to Boston as well as they did. But it turned a corner in the struggle for independence, became known as the shot heard around the world because of what happened at Lexington and Concord. And the thing that rivets my attention is here's a pastor who was courageous enough to speak out that liberty was God's idea and people shouldn't be expected to live under arbitrary tyranny. And he would not stand for it. He, he was so bold that he said, even if they lost, he would at least have the satisfaction of knowing that they had spoken up for that which is right and true and proper. And we celebrate what those men stood for that day. And we celebrate it because it's amazing that a church would do such a thing. And that church people were so involved. And it was true all across the area, all across the region, all across the, the colonies. And church people continued to be involved in the, in the struggle for liberty throughout it because they believed that God had given them the gift of liberty.
and they needed to stand up for it. And they could not, they could not risk letting it go. They were going to do their duty and they were going to stand for that, which is right and true. And they preserved for us and gave to us a nation. As the Pledge of Allegiance says, one nation under God. They gave to us a nation that understood the importance of civil, civil liberty and religious liberty, that understood that we, we have to preserve both. Without religious liberty, we won't have civil liberty. Without civil liberty, we won't have religious liberty. And my prayer and fervent hope is that the church will come to realize this. No, I don't think we are at a point in history where it will result in armed conflict between churchmen who have trained in the churchyard and soldiers who will come at them. But I think it's time for the church to speak up and step up and resist the tyranny of our times so that we have a free country. It's too easy to slip into some of these things and to watch our liberties dissolve around us, and we must not do that. We, the church, must speak up. And the way we do that is not to become a tool of politics, but to be biblically forthright. And if the Bible talks about an issue of our times, we, the church, need to speak up because that is God's word to us, and we need to proclaim it and live by it. We need to be biblically correct, not at all politically correct. We don't need to be a tool for politics. No church should ever be a tool for politics, but we should be forthright in saying our rights come from God. We formed government to preserve our rights, and we expect them to do that. We, the people, are the governed, and we give power to those who govern us by our consent, and we expect them to understand that. Well, I hope you have a really wonderful celebration. I hope you recapture this idea that that our freedom, our liberty comes from God and was God's idea. I hope you recapture the idea that our rights come from God. And I hope you and your church will become forthright and speak up for that which is biblically correct, that which is right, so that we can say to our children and grandchildren, we preserve liberty. Thanks for listening. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. We'll talk again next week.